Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Season 2 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. Welcome to those who are here for the first time, and a hearty welcome back to the LCP faithful. What we do here is look at what the mainstream media feels is important to tell us about current events, politics, science, religion, and just about anything else, but we're not interested in their spin. We want to look at these stories logically, and we especially want to look at these stories as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. With local laws, state laws, federal laws, and tax code, you and I, oh yeah, we're hardened criminals. They just haven't caught us yet. And anyone that's ever thought about the tens and hundreds of thousands of laws knows that there's literally no way we're not all guilty somewhere. And yet, more laws are written every year, whether they need to be or not. It's just whatever someone thinks we need, then it's voted on, and poof, another way for us to be criminals. On today's episode, first we're going to do our best to spring God from his earthly prison, and then we'll be able to shout at the cops, I know my rights, and mean it. So, get a good seat for the upcoming fireworks, and get ready to face your peers. And remember, after the lights go out, and the music fades, goal update number three. So... I may be going away for a little while, and here we go. Well, once again, I want you to join me in a little thought exercise, and yes, trust me, I'm with you. Both thought and exercise are horrible words. There are many days I would much rather engage in some intense, mindless slothfulness, but those are apparently not spiritual gifts that I've been granted. A few episodes back, I challenged you to think about the power that we've given to the cell phone or on a generic level a device with regard to the apparent increase in depression and all that stems from that in kids and adolescents. I suggested that although devices and social media networks haven't helped the situation, the constant suggestion for the last, what, 5, 10, 15 years of don't let kids on these things until they're adults or we need to outlaw these apps or, you know, suggestions similar to that. They're not only not realistic in the world as it stands today, but it's really only attacking a contributing cause, not a or the root cause of the problem. I suggested that the woke movement, parents lacking discipline, both of their kids and of themselves, the lack of loving parents, the feminization of the gospel in churches and dumbifying of youth groups to try to be more like the world, the constant drive to force Christianity out of every aspect of society, the constant drumbeat of evolutionary thinking that we're all just animals, these might be more along the lines of what we need to be looking at more than just a device, which is really just nothing more than a tool when you come down to it. But even all of those are more symptoms or effects of the actual cause, a lack of interest in Christianity. This manifests itself as a loss of a strong and real factual Christian message, a lack of strong churches, uh, strong pastors, strong parents. We kind of pick and choose what out of the Bible we teach as fairy tales and what we teach as historical fact. The Bible has been displaced as the only real source of true truth. We no longer unapologetically present the powerful message of the gospel. And the list goes on. Those are the things that we really need to get back to if we would ever hope to have mankind turn back around after a few generations. We need to get back to God's word. God's way. Anything less than that will always degrade and result in what we've got. Now, all that said, the supermajority, all red West Virginia legislature, specifically the Senate, has proposed WV Senate Bill 251. 
Now, this story is all over West Virginia right now. My base article is found on usatoday.com. Headline, public schools in West Virginia may soon be required to display in God we trust in a conspicuous place. So the article, surprisingly, is actually pretty much a fact-based news story. And I say surprisingly because it's from USA Today, eh, which tends to be a little more left-leaning, like most of the news sources these days. The opening sentence states, quote, West Virginia public schools may soon be required to display the national motto, In God We Trust, if a bill passed by the state Senate this week becomes law. The bill was introduced in the Senate by Senator Mike Azinger, a senator and apparently a real estate something or other in West Virginia. It was introduced on January 17th, passed the Senate on January 30th, and now sits with the various House committees before going for a vote. The fairly solid assumption is that it'll pass with no problem and then be passed to the governor, Jim Justice, who will likely sign it without giving it a second thought, but definitely with giving it a good amount of fanfare as he gears up for his Senate run that I really hope he decides against. I mean, he'd be better than Joe Manchin, but not by a whole lot. Not overly impressed with, nor am I confident in his uh, conservative principles. Anyway, this bill is a very simple one-pager. It states... And I'll read the entire bill here. A. A public elementary or secondary school or a state institution of higher education must display in a conspicuous place in each building of the school or institution a durable poster or framed copy of the United States national motto, In God We Trust, if the poster or framed copy meets the requirements of subsection B, of this section and is one donated for display at the school or institution or two purchased from private donations and made available to the school or institution b a poster or framed copy of the national motto described in subsection a of this section one must contain a representation of the united states flag centered under the national motto and a representation of the state flag and two may not depict any words, images, or other information other than the representations listed in subdivision 1 of this subsection. C. A public elementary or secondary school and an institution of higher education may accept and use private donations for the purposes of subsection A of this section. Man, I hate reading those things. And anyway, there you go. So, it must have the American flag, the state flag, only the words in God we trust. It must be placed in every public institution of learning. Sounds like every building in that public institution of learning. And it must be in an obvious place. No hiding it behind the wrestling mats or anything. And it must be donated in in some way. So what happens if nobody donates? I mean, someone will, but, but what if, right? Can you have a must if it's donation-based? Anyway. The article quotes part of the speech that Senator Azinger gave on the Senate floor. Quote, We know there's a lot of kids that have problems at home, tough times at home that we don't know anything about. Maybe they'll look up one day and say, In God we trust. And know they can put their hope in God. He also said that he wanted kids to have something to look up to as well as to let them know it's okay for them to say God in school. From my experience, kids these days have no problem saying the name God in school. It's all the other little extra bits that they tack on to the beginning and end of that that I kind of have a problem with. This is probably not what he meant, though. <laughs> now, look, I have no problem with, in God we trust, being emblazoned across every school. 
I have no problem with the Ten Commandments prominently displayed in every classroom. I have no problem with class prayer, reciting the pledge, Bibles and Bible studies, etc. But what I'm seeing is, for lack of a better term here, a stunt. Something that plays well with the base. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't doubt his sincerity for a moment. I also agree that kids need someone to look up to. And, you know, God, that would be a solid choice. But what will this actually do, other than bring a number of challenges and lawsuits, etc., etc.? I think the only way that a government entity could get away with doing this is because it is the motto. President Dwight Eisenhower signed a law, July 30th, 1956, that made, in God we trust, the national motto, which was done two years after he had the phrase, under God, added to the Pledge of Allegiance. Azinger, referencing the adoption of the national motto, said, quote, It was adopted during a time of disunity in America, at a time that unity was needed. And I think that's where we are in America in many ways. Again, I don't disagree with him, although I disagree that we, as a nation, will ever be unified again, unless God himself makes that happen, which as I believe in a sovereign God, no matter how it were to happen, if it happened, it would be because of God's doing, but I digress. The questions are, will this aid in unifying America, and will this actually do anything for the kids? ACLU Advocacy Director Eli Baumwell said, quote, We know this is something that's easy for folks to vote for. We know it's something that they'll get attacked for voting against. We understand that it's the national motto, but it's also something that makes a lot of people who are not religious feel very uncomfortable. Okay, well, I agree with the first thing he said. It is easy to vote for, and it will bring out the knives towards anybody that votes against it. I disagree that it's going to make a lot of non-religious people feel very uncomfortable. If you're uncomfortable by a sign in a single location that says that, well, I think the problem lies more with you than the sign. Just say it. But I come back to my point. In the world we live in today, this will not unify. I think this will actually cause greater division. Now, the article says that currently Mississippi has this law. They were the first state to pass it in 2001. And since then, this type of law has been passed in Kentucky, Louisiana, South Dakota, Texas, Utah, and Virginia. So let me ask you, has the sign brought unity in any form, in any way, in those states? Has it bolstered religious learnings? Has it upped the church attendance? Has it done anything for the kids? Has it done anything at all except put money in the pockets of lawyers? From a constitutional viewpoint, from my non-lawyer-esque worldview, I think the only way this could possibly stand is because it's the national motto. Those words, were they not the motto, being mandated into public schools by the government, really pushes the freedom of religion clause, and I think it actually violates the concept, the context, of Jefferson's separation of church and state comment. This is literally the government mandating a religious statement. Again, from a personal standpoint, I have no problem with this being displayed everywhere. But from a logical standpoint, this is just lawsuit fodder and clear pandering. From a more 10,000-foot view on this, the question would have to be, at least to me, is this motto even accurate anymore? When this motto was put in place, the God referred to was and is the God of the Christian Bible. Do we as a nation trust in him anymore? Do we as a nation even believe in him anymore? Do people that profess themselves to be Christians across this country even believe in the God of the Bible or even know who the God of the Bible actually is at this point in our history? 
From what I've seen over the last 10 years, and this slide has been happening much longer than that, we are a people with the most and best biblical resources and evidence ever in the history of the world, and I think we're pushing our way to the front of the line as being the most biblically illiterate people in the history of the world. We prefer that we're told what to think rather than read ourselves. We'd rather just take the word of the pastor-type guy up front talking about whatever than to actually verify that what we're being told is accurate. We like the guys that tell us to unhitch from the Old Testament that agree with us that that God guy, eh, he was a mean old man. Thank God Jesus came along, am I right? I did a review on a congressman a few weeks back who was going to be sworn in on a copy of the first issue of the Superman comic. Although many were likely horrified by his choice, my point was, do I want him to take his oath on the Bible when he clearly hates it, everything it stands for and teaches? And my answer is no. I'd rather he took his oath on the comic book. By displaying this motto, aren't we doing the same thing? We're throwing up a facade that is clearly meaningless to, what, most people at this point? Do we as Christians want God's name and the lie that as a nation we trust him posted everywhere? At this point, would doing this be taking God's name in vain since we as a nation don't really believe or trust him? Senator Azinger spoke of this time in our history when we need to be unified again. Okay, again, I agree. I just don't think it'll ever happen short of a miracle. Back in the Civil War era, this nation was clearly divided, more so than today, as they actually went to war. We haven't done that. Yet, one side was pro-slavery, one side was anti-slavery. Both sides were using scriptures as their justification for their stance. One side, the the pro-slavery side to be clear, was misreading and using the scriptures out of context, and generally just poorly. But the reality is, agree or not, the nation was mostly unified on a biblical Christianity foundation. If you were to take a poll back then, I mean, even in the 1950s, and ask if people agreed with the statement, in God we trust, you would get a clear majority that would emphatically agree. This is not where we are today. If you took that poll today, well, I think you'd be lucky to get a 50-50 split. Now, I know there are all sorts of views on what I'm going to say next. But I do believe that this country was divinely founded. I think that the Constitution was divinely inspired. I think that the Founding Fathers were divinely led. And I think it was all done for God's purpose. To that end, I have no qualms with saying that although we were founded with religious freedom, we were founded primarily as a Christian nation. I don't believe that's how we can claim to identify anymore. And that's definitely not who we are in practice anymore. I've said before that Ken Ham says there are only two religions in this world, God and not God. And those are the two large factions in this country, those that believe in the God of the Bible, or at least at a minimum live by biblical morals and ethics, and those that either believe there is no God, or believe in various man-made gods, or are openly hostile to even the thought of a God. We in America no longer have a common foundation to start from in order to bring forth unity. The West Virginia State Legislature has been working hard this term to push through bill after bill meant to bring our state much farther to the conservative right. Look, I recognize and highly commend them for it. They've been doing good work. I also understand what Senator Azinger is trying to do. Despite my tone, I'm actually sympathetic to his goal. I just think that this is maybe not the best way. I mean, call me pessimistic, 
I prefer to think of myself as an optimist, but a realist, but whatever. But I believe the return on investment is very potentially zero. And the political capital, as well as the real monetary capital, has the potential to be extreme. The problem, from my perspective, and your view may differ, is that we, as conservatives in general, and Christians specifically, can identify the problems fairly readily. From a conservative worldview, we're losing conservative values. Even those in the conservative party don't seem to be all that conservative anymore. We're in a constant state of losing ground on true science, and freedom, protection of women, protection of children, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, the right to think and believe as you choose. The reason for this, and the problem readily identified by true Christians, is sin. It's a desire for the world rather than the desire for God, a compromise of the Bible with human selfishness and greed. The question is, what do we do? And that's normally where we fall apart. The things that Governor DeSantis and the legislature in Florida are doing, and in lesser ways, but still important ways, the actions being taken in states like Oklahoma and Texas and even West Virginia, as well as a handful of other states, they're great, right? They're doing good things. We do need to be fighting back against all of the leftist, I'd say, demonic arrows being shot at us right now. We need to be fighting to protect children, fighting to not erase women, fighting to keep our freedoms. But as Senator Azinger rightly identified, we need to show this country that the only hope we truly have is to turn back to God. If we're going to spend political capital, if we're going to fight to get God back into schools, why not just go full out? Allow religion back in the school. Allow teachers the ability to speak on religion, not to proselytize. Remember, this is a school. It has its own function, but to make it so the teachers can pray alone or with students, that they can be part of and actually lead Bible studies with other teachers or students. How about mandating a religions course where teachers use solid, approved materials to teach the various aspects of mainstream religions, maybe even allow pastors, imams, priests, etc., to come in and answer questions about their various faiths? See, I'm not willing to even say that only Christianity should be taught. Let's open this up. Give kids the facts with full transparency to the parents, of course, and let them use their brains like education is supposed to do. A number of years ago in my elementary age Sunday school class, I went through about 10 mainstream religions and covered aspects like their holy text, their prophets, their god or gods, what they believe about creation, eschatology, what are their rules, what happens when you die. I just taught it as facts of each religion. Then at the end, I put together a matrix of what makes a good religion, and then we scored each religion based on those questions. Christianity came out on top, which, yeah, okay, maybe I was biased, but the criteria that I used to score it were not biased. And even then, I told them that if they didn't like my criteria, come up with your own. Do your own scoring, but just make sure you can justify why you chose what you chose as your criteria. These are the types of things that we should push if we're going to have a fight with the ACLU or parents or teachers unions or whoever anyways, right? My fear is of forcing this sign, putting up the motto simply because it says God on it, because it forces everyone to affirm that they trust in the God of the Bible. That'll be the argument. It'll cause such a come apart by those on the godless left and many on the right that probably need to do a little self-examination that even the supermajority in the Congress won't have the political will in the future 
to try something even more bold. Oh, oh, remember last time with the motto? I'm not willing to go through that again. If Senator Azinger had simply crafted, say, an American pride bill, you know, we place the motto in the school, say the Pledge of Allegiance every morning, have an American flag in every classroom, ensure the history books and the lessons are not politically biased, we represent political viewpoints accurately, then fine, whatever. But the fact that Azinger has crafted this bill and stated his desire to place the motto in each school for the reasons that he stated, which are clearly more Christian in nature than they are American, that's where I have a problem with what he's doing, and more so, the way he's going about it. In Matthew 10, Jesus is telling his apostles, and by extension us, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men! for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. We generally have the gentle as doves part down pretty good, not so much the wise as serpents. Regardless, any time we do speak, we're brought before the courts to metaphorically, for now, be flogged. If we're going to be dragged before kings and governors, if we're going to be hated, why not go all out? We're ceding all sorts of ground by trying to mandate the national motto. We're hiding under the cover of national pride in order to slip God into the schools. And I guarantee there will be some activist judge, like that fool that put an injunction on the abortion ban, that won't like that that G word is going to be in the school. Separation of church and state. If we're going to have that fight, let's really fight it. Let's not try to sneak God in under the cover of darkness, agreeing that we should have separation of church and state, and agreeing that teachers need to be a-religious, and agreeing that a public building is really no place for religion, which is what we're doing by trying this little stunt. No, 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 no. Let's kick the school doors down and march into the school with true freedom. Freedom of speech, freedom to believe as you so choose, the freedom of religion for the literal American citizens that reside within. That's all I'm saying. If we're going to fight for the kids and the adults to be able to look to God for hope, why would we timidly mandate a sign? Let's be wise as serpents. Go on the offensive for once. Give the kids real freedom and a real hope. Ah, but what do I know? And what do you think? The pokey, the joint... Club Fed, the Big House, Up the River, the Hooskow, the Clink, the Slamma, the Crowbar Motel. Yep, we're talking about jail. You've committed a crime, now what? That's right, you do the time. Well, I mean, maybe. It really depends on a few things. I mean, what did you do and what era are you living in? Hey, welcome back to the American Genesis, episode 25, which is part 7 of our look at the amendments to the Constitution. Today we're going to take a look at amendment number 6, and you being the criminal that you apparently are, you should be very happy about amendment number 6. So as we always do, let's take a little read over the actual text. Quote, In all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed, which district shall have been previously ascertained by law, and to be informed of the nature and cause of the accusation, to be confronted with the witness against him, to have compulsory process for obtaining witnesses in his favor, and to have the assistance of counsel 
for his defense. All right. I know that there are multiple definitions to the word enjoy, but using the one where you kind of make that yummy sound, mmm, the fact that it says you shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial kind of makes me chuckle a little bit. I envision someone that's just ear-to-ear smiles practically giddy because the trial happened so fast for their, uh, for their criminal action. Anyway, as we did with Amendment 5, we'll break this one down into its parts, but before we do that, let's take a few minutes to appreciate what the judicial system looked like for colonists prior to the Constitution. Maybe we'll see why using the yummy sound definition for enjoy may not be too far off. So I found a website about Colonial Williamsburg, and it really walks through the history of prisons and trials and punishment, etc., through the 17th and 18th century. Interesting. Very interesting. But before we hit that, let's go back a bit farther, shall we? The concept of crime and prison has been around since nearly the beginning of creation. One could argue that although Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit and then lied to God, that that was a sin, not a crime. Cain killing Abel? Another sin? Today we call it a crime, obviously. But the first mention of a prison takes place toward the end of Genesis, when Joseph was wrongly thrown into prison. That mention, being a young earth creationist, was about 2200 years after creation. Of course, for Joseph to be thrown into a prison where there were other prisoners, it meant that prison existed prior to this event, and we just have no way of knowing how early in our history the concept of incarceration to whatever degree may have taken place. The prison there for Joseph sounded like it was a place that uh, anyone could be thrown into by anyone else based solely on a charge and then just kept there. And since Joseph was given charge over the other prisoners, it doesn't exactly sound like what we have today. Now, it would be another 300 years before Moses was given the law that we find in Leviticus. What's interesting is that in the Mosaic law, or the Levitical law, there were no punishments of incarceration. There were fines, there were beatings, there was stoning, there was slavery, but no prison, no long, drawn-out court trials, no appeals, an accusation, couple witnesses, speedy trial, punishment based on God's law. Simple to the point. If you know that you'll be instantly stoned for doing certain things, it would act as somewhat of a deterrent, at least one would think. Moving into the New Testament, we find prisons. Most of the time, those mentioned were containing an apostle or two. It sounds like even those that had doors weren't considered overly secure, as the prisoners were either shackled to the floor in very very legs wide open spread position, or they were chained to one of the guards. And again, the concept of trials existed, but they're a far cry from what we have today. Jumping to pre-revolution days, prisons were not generally utilized for extended incarceration as a punishment. You may sit there for quite some time awaiting trial, or you may have been thrown in a prison to rot, but generally they were just holding pens. And after trial and sentence was pronounced, the punishment was carried out immediately or the accused was released. The exception was generally debtor's prison, which was literally an oxymoron since you not being able to work would result in you never paying your debt and just living forever in the prison till you die. Although there were some crimes that were open and shut cases, like debt, obviously, murder, burglary, it didn't take much to have someone arrested and held and put on trial, and depending on who wanted you arrested and detained, well, you might just sit in that tower for the rest of your life, right? Holding the power has its privileges. For most criminals, however, once convicted, they were given one of four styles of punishment. A fine for the most minor offenses, 
public shame than physical chastisement or possibly death. Public shame could range from time in the stocks to being branded with the letter of your crime. We have A for adulterer, B for blasphemy, D for a drunk, F for a fighter, M for manslaughter, R for rogue, and T for thief. For those that committed something worse or didn't get the hint with the first level of punishment, we move to physical chastisement, which could be flogging, branding with a hot iron, or possibly having their ears removed. So, so that seems horrible. The death penalty was an interesting case. It started to be in vogue for about uh, anything and everything, but there were ways you could get out of it. Maybe. You could ask for mercy by being sent, uh, well, first to North America and then after our independence to Australia, this is coming from England, of course, as a servant to uh, someone. Clergy could avoid the death penalty by reciting a memorized Bible verse, which that right then extended to most prisoners, and then it kind of turned into some sort of literacy test, and then it was stopped. Pregnant women could plead their bellies and either be granted mercy or at least delay their death penalty. Later in the 17th century and on into the 18th century, the idea of prison, which to this point was still just a holding tank for trial, at least for the most part, consisted of a cellar, maybe a tower, something like that, it started to be looked at as the punishment rather than the other things. Instead of using it as a holding tank, using it as the punishment for a period of time after which the prisoner would be set free again. Now, along with this came the calls for more humane treatment of prisoners and criminals rather than the shaming and the chastising. At the same time, the death penalty was being rethought as well. The death penalty was being applied to just everything. So, Burglary was death. Murder was death. Well, oftentimes criminals that were only interested in committing a burgle would just do a murder while they were at it, you know, so there weren't any witnesses. I mean, if the penalty was death for burgling anyway, well, you know, they can only kill you once, so you might as well try, right? Kill the witnesses. So while the idea of prisons and penalties were being debated, the death penalty was also being debated and limited. Now, skipping ahead a bit more, we get to 1789, when one of the proposed amendments to the Constitution had to do with the idea of criminal prosecutions. So, with a very brief background on prisons and penalties, let's quickly look at the parts to this amendment. First, we have in all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial. Now, there was no point in dragging out the trial. They weren't doing this to begin with. Why start now? No point in waiting forever, right? The person could be innocent, so there was no point in holding them in a prison cell for any longer than needed to prove guilt or innocence. This also guaranteed your right to a public trial. Now, we could argue what that exactly means, especially in today's live stream, everything, make a TikTok video world, but you can't be shuffled off to a dark room somewhere, pronounced guilty, and then just uh, disappeared. At least not in the United States. At least not yet. Second, a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed, which district shall have been previously ascertained by law. So if you recall way back in our The American Genesis series, we spoke briefly about the fact that colonists accused of crimes in America were often sent on a ship back to England, where they sat awaiting trial for an undetermined amount of time, and then eventually they were tried and usually convicted in that different country, away from the accusers, away from the crime, away from witnesses. I mean, it was basically, um, well, it was suboptimal. 
So this amendment says that the accused has the right to a trial by jury and an impartial jury, which I don't even know how you get people today that don't know what's going on, but this is why jurors are sequestered away and not allowed on the internet, etc., at least depending on the trial, so as to not be tainted by everybody and their cousin giving their opinion on a show professing to be news. Additionally, the accused has the right to have the trial in the location the crime was committed. Of course, there are petitions for change of venue, but those are usually filed when the defense feels they can't get an impartial jury in that location. The ending clause, the district shall have been previously ascertained by law. If charges were going to be levied against someone, the accusation at least needs to pass the smell test, right? Some facts or evidence must be gathered prior to an arrest, prior to incarceration, prior to a trial. Third, it says next the accused must be, quote, informed of the nature and cause of the accusation. Well, this seems obvious, right? If you're arresting me and throwing me in jail, I'd kind of like to know why, although I'm confident that this is violated on probably an all-too-regular basis in the United States today. I guarantee that many countries in the world don't have this right at all, right? When you need to know, you'll be told. Until then, just kind of sit there and shut up. Fourth, we then find out that the accused has the right to be confronted with the witnesses against him. Well, how important is this? I mean, you can't defend yourself against shadows. The accuser must have skin in the game as well. If this weren't the case, would we have a high number of anonymous tipsters leveling criminal accusations against someone, causing them to end up in jail? This form of confrontation will, of course, differ based on the crime committed, but in some form or fashion, the accused must be told who is accusing them. Fifth, the accused must have a compulsory process for obtaining witnesses in his favor. If you have or had kids, or you're going to have kids in the near future, you either know or you'll find out that uh, the he said, she said game, or the you did it, no I didn't, you did it, no I didn't type of arguments, those are just pointless. If there isn't a jumbotron replaying that section of life that's being squabbled about, pretty much stuck, right? So this allows the accused the ability to call witnesses in order to plea his or her case as to why they should be found innocent. And then last, but definitely not least, the accused has the right to a lawyer, or as the amendment says, to have the assistance of counsel for his defense. Not everyone wants a lawyer to help them defend themselves, and depending on the case, not everyone necessarily needs one. But if you're embroiled in a criminal case, you probably need to get a lawyer. This clause allows you that ability, and as we stand today, if you can't afford one, one will be appointed to you. Also, as it stands today, there are over 5,000 federal criminal laws and could be up to 300,000 regulations that could be enforced criminally. If you're accused of a criminal offense, you should probably get yourself one of them law-talking guys. And that's your Sixth Amendment. So when you commit your criminal act, be thankful you don't have to sit in the stocks or be branded with a letter or have your ears forcefully removed. And since we have a few minutes, why don't we go ahead and tackle Amendment Number 7 really quick? I mean, the fact that I'm one amendment behind the episode part is driving me a little bonkers. I mean, Part 7, but Amendment 6. I mean, who does that, right? So Amendment 7 reads as follows, quote, In suits at common law, 
where the value in controversy shall exceed $20, the right of trial by jury shall be preserved, and no fact tried by a jury shall be otherwise re-examined in any court of the United States than according to the rules of the common law. Okay, well, we can't get more basic than this, right? So common law at this time was still based on English common law. This meant that the law was based more on precedent or previous rulings than it was on actual statutes and written laws. Eventually, the United States had enough of its own precedent and rulings that common law was shifted from its base on English law to being based on our own law. This amendment only applied on the federal level, not the state level. So, essentially, anything above a petty crime has the right to be tried by jury. When looking at an inflation calculator that goes back to 1790 all the way to today, and this is really subjective at best, it says that $20 is now about $645. So even though I wouldn't step over $645 in the street, in the grand scheme of things, that's a fairly small amount of money for a crime. I mean, in California, you can pretty much get away with theft under $1,000. It's not entirely true, but it kind of is, right? I mean, they're not going to track you down and prosecute you because you stole a $500 TV from Walmart. I mean, let's be honest here. That said, on the off chance that would happen, or if you live in a state where crimes still equal crimes, anything over a petty crime could be tried by jury if requested. And if you think that a judge won't give you a fair trial, why not request a jury trial? Now, personally, and this is just personally, I'd rather just have my case dismissed and transfer it over to Judge Judy, who may be the only flaming liberal I just love to pieces. I mean, her snark is, it's just right, in my humble opinion. Now, the second part of this amendment kind of reiterates what was already stated in the Fifth Amendment. You can't be tried a second time, you know, double jeopardy, for the same thing once it's been ruled on. We cover that in slightly more depth in the past episode. And with that, I'll bring this episode of the American Genesis to a close. I feel so much better now that the episodes and the amendments line up. And looking forward to next week, well, they're probably going to skew again, but in the good direction, so I guess that's okay. Anyway, I sincerely hope that neither you nor I ever have to avail ourselves of these amendments, these constitutional rights, but at least they're there if we need them, right? So, I guess the only thing left to say is, uh, until next time. Well, we've reached the end of another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, review, share, and all that podcasty stuff. Contact information can be found in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to me. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the Word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless. Can you believe we've made it to Goal Progress Update number three already? Do you have any idea what that means? That means for three weeks in a row, I've tried, allegedly. So jumping right in, remember, this is as of Tuesday, regarding my weight loss. Now keep in mind, over the course of the last week, I caught some sort of a chest cold, or at least that's what we used to call it, in the before times. I'm pretty sure I caught it from being around the thongs of people at the kids' show choir competition. 
I know it's throngs, but you either chuckled or you were horrified. Either way, I win. So there were three days when I wasn't punching the heavy bag rather than the typical one day off per week. I also tend to be a stress eater, which is unfortunate as apparently everything in the known universe causes me stress. I mean, I don't feel stressed at all, but from the eating, one can only assume. I've found that I tend to live by the old adage, feed a fever, feed a cold. I also tend to feed an injury, say like when I pull something in the old back, as I'll do from time to time. That said, on those days that I didn't work out because I felt the worst, I was able to barely, strugglingly stay at the calorie threshold that my fitness pal had arbitrarily set for me based on whatever goals and lies I programmed in there to begin with. So with all that against me, I still managed to lose 2.6 pounds from last week, which is over the minimum goal of 1.5 per week that I've set. That brings my weight down to 206.2 pounds, an 8.2 pound loss in the last three weeks. Again, I don't think this rate of just over 2.7 pounds per week is a realistic or sustainable rate, at least not anymore at my age, but I'll take it as long as my stupid body is too stupid to stupid realize it. This puts me 3.7 pounds ahead of my goal and keeps me in the solid green. Moving to reading, I'll admit, this is a struggle as I tend to leave it for bedtime, you know, so I read rather than stare at my phone right before going to sleep. Turns out, reading is much harder to stay awake to do than playing a royal match. But I did get 74 pages read over the last week, bringing my total for January to 540 pages, 180% of my goal so far. More importantly is the 74 pages, which to reach my goal of 3,600 pages in the year, I'll need to read an average of about 10 pages per day. So 74 puts me right there. So this goal also remains a solid green. Next is the Bible in a year by the end of September. Again, this is not the entire Bible. It's about seven months of my MacArthur Daily Bible, just jam-packed into nine months. I moved up just very very slightly toward being on track with my goal from last week, moving from about, and I had to go out one more decimal place here, 90.35% to 90.50%. So progress, but admittedly I need to do better here. The problem is that I've kind of found a groove to do the reading at work about lunchtime for about 15 to 20 minutes. That's kind of set at this point. But then the weekends roll around and you know how you just kind of do weekend things and then all of a sudden it's Monday? Yeah, I'll admit it. I, I just forget. Not a good excuse, just being realistic. So, like I said, I need to do better here. Keeping this one at a light green for now. And finally, devotions. This one I hit in the morning. It's about five to ten minutes of reading, depending on how many supplemental scriptures are suggested for the day. Either way, it's fairly simple to do. I knock it out before the shower in the morning. So hitting this pretty much every day, eh, not really too difficult. That being said, as compared to my goal, I moved from 99.2% last week, which is just very slightly behind the goal pace, to 103.9%, which is starting to pull ahead of the pace nicely. This one has moved from a light green last week to a solid green this week. And there you go. That's the update for week number three. So far, so good. How about you? Did you set some goals? How are you doing on them? If you've made a goal or more, stick with it or them. I mean, if I can do it, you can do it. As always, if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions, 
just let me know. Bye for now.